0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And this past week, I'm pleased to report that we've received donations from Joseph T. and Justin R., both of whom are also now participants in our Psychedelic Salon forums. And if you've noticed a small addition on our homepage at psychedelicsalon.com, well, then you'll discover something that I plan on expanding into a major topic on those forums. And uh, I'll have more to say about that in future podcasts. But getting back to our donors, I want to thank you both once again for your help in offsetting some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And also, I'd like to acknowledge the help of another anonymous Bitcoin donor. Uh, and thanks to a recent rise in its price, this year's Bitcoin donations have uh, already risen by about 20% in the last couple of months. So uh, your Bitcoin gifts just keep on giving. Now, today we're going to listen to more of a December 1989 workshop led by Terrence McKenna. It begins with him answering a few questions that lingered from that morning session, but then he turns the floor over to one of the participants who tells what Terrence calls a fieldwork story about a recent trip that he made to the Peruvian Amazon to investigate ayahuasca. Now, keep in mind the fact that this talk takes place over 25 years ago, and at least in the part of the country where I was living at the time, I'll bet I couldn't have found more than a handful of people within a 100 miles of me who had even heard the word ayahuasca. I guess there may be more early detailed talks uh, about the state of ayahuasca use in the Amazon than this one, but I've never come across one myself. Now, while I'm not at liberty at the moment to say anything more about the man who did this field work and gave the talk, there will probably be several hundred of our fellow Saloners uh, here who know and love this amazing person. And while he does his best to remain behind the scenes, the work that he does there has been every bit as significant as uh, that of Sasha Shogan, Terrence McKenna, or any of the other famous elders that you can name. And as you listen to him tell his story, try and uh, think about where you actually were in December of 1989, so as to uh, better place this talk in its historical setting. First, though, uh, you're going to hear Terrence say that when a person begins having deep psychedelic experiences, that you set off cascades of synchronistic events. And when we get to that point, uh, in about five minutes, I think that you may amaze yourself if you pause this podcast for a few moments and see if you can find a cascade of synchronicities that led you from your first deep psychedelic experience to where you are now listening to a podcast from the Psychedelic Salon. I know that when I did that, it revealed a chain of events that now seem to me as if I'd been, well, led to this moment in time that you and I are spending with one another. Or, uh, or, <laughs> maybe I'm just getting carried away with myself again. I'll let you decide for yourself. So, uh, now let's join Terrence McKenna on a Saturday afternoon in December of 1989.
1: Okay. Well, uh is there a, anybody who was left unbalanced by the brutal truncation of this morning's session and and needs to ask a question? We can talk a little bit about this morning's session and then I thought if he's still game that can uh, who is a uh, a regular attendee at these things, he has a, a sort of interesting field work story to tell that would be inspiring. And then we could talk about that or other issues or if it went flat, I would synthetically create a focus. So, um, okay. Is there anything left over from this morning uh, or any line of discussion that needs to be pursued on that? Uh, I think we took it up to uh, the notion of virtual reality being promising for the production of a kind of higher-order logos of communication that would be beheld rather than heard. Uh, This is a fave theme of mine because... uh, The way I finally interpreted what was happening inside the DMT experience was that these creatures were speaking in this visibly beheld language. And I had never even conceived of such a thing. I mean, I just assumed language is something you hear with your ears. But it turns out, no, that's just one way to do it. And another way is this visual input model. And... It seemed to me it, it's a true form of telepathy. It's not telepathy as we might have anticipated. My notion of telepathy was always I hear what you think, not I see what you mean, and you see it too. And we contemplate it as a three dimensional object. So virtual reality is interesting. For that, See, I think that the engineers and the people who are putting this together don't realize how odd the insides of our minds are and what a revolution it will make when we can show the insides of our minds to each other and the imagination can leave a, a trail, as it were, so that each, imagine if each trip of every one of us could be set on a stacker here and we would just move among the cuts and say well here's Ken in the jungle an hour and 20 minutes into his and here's McKenna five years ago on X Y and Z and have these things discussable as objects as media well this looms I think and it will empower the creation of a language and a community of understanding about these things that will be, you know, uh, lighting a wildfire of shamanic uh, awareness. I mean, it's, it's approaching critical mass, the ability to talk about this other reality in 20th century English. It's approaching critical mass. And and when it bubbles over, you know, then it will be a reality. Then it will be something. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, my idea of the real state of balance that you could achieve if you were able to perfect what psychedelics promise is a kind of state of mind where... It was perceived as ego, but it was Tao. In other words, that you come so into phase with the howness of things that your wishes are the wishes that would be there in your absence almost, so that you are invisibly merged with the flow. And when when this happens, and for some reason, I mean, this is really an interesting subject, and I confess that my best guesses are not very creative. This thing that everybody talks about, which is when you first start using psychedelics, the deep ones, you set off cascades of synchronistic events. And some of these are what psychologists call delusion of reference, In that every license plate, if you live in California, seems to convey a unique message designed for you. But some of it cannot be so easily dismissed. Some of it actually appears to be disruption of the statistical flow of casuistry in the so-called three-dimensional world. And uh, you know, getting a handle on that or getting a theory about that is, uh, is pretty elusive. Uh, does it mean that causality itself is something embedded in our language, and that when we dissolve the boundaries of language, what we ordinarily think of as the laws of physics, or at least the laws of statistical probability, begin themselves to break down. That actually, um, you know, I think a lot of people uh, in our ven of thought pay lip service to the notion that the world is made of language, but the question is how to take that idea and ride off on it. You know, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride well, if the world of, is made of language, we should be able to construct stallions of syntax and just uh, ride on down the road. Is this possible? Is it worth entertaining the idea? Uh, the, the, the forward escape that is going to be necessary to uh, save the planet or even save our own skin is going to be extraordinarily creative. It's not a stopping of anything. It's not a managing of anything because nothing can be managed. I mean you have you know just the unleashed rapaciousness of five billion intelligent human beings uh, spreading out over the planet. So the breakthrough is going to have to come in a major reconceptualizing, of reality how how can it be done is it are we to shrink ourselves down to the size of fruit flies and uh, all live in an arcology on the dark side of the moon is that a reasonable alternative how can we manage the present population back down to a population that could be in balance on the earth in the monkey body it would take a thousand or more years to get us down to a billion people, I would think. So the breakthrough has to be a kind of deus ex machina or more a homo machina. In other words, man must create a way out of the impasse. And obviously the umbilicus of reality is tied somewhere in the cerebral cortex of the monkey. Uh, it's all put together in there, and the trick then is to tease out the real operational constraints that set up the parameters of apparent existence. And and what the what shamanism is, what the psychedelics are, is simply heaving brickbats into the still water of consciousness and then analyzing the wave mechanical perturbations that result from this and trying to create some kind of linguistic transform that allows you to map it back onto something uh, you can understand. But someone said, who isn't here unfortunately, that uh, he completely rejected a notion very dear to my heart which is that we're living in unique times that history is a compressive force that is moving toward a conclusion and that this conclusion is now not that far in the future uh, and he said he didn't believe this and that he was a steady stater and so on but you see the presence of ourselves is the indication that an extraordinary event is about to take place on planet three. We have emerged out of animal organization over the past hundred thousand years. We have emerged out of um, tribalism in the last 10,000 years. The fact that we are undergoing this informational foment, this uh, self-reflection of the universe and recoding and recasting of it that d- spins off technologies and languages like a pinwheel this is not this signifies that something unusual is going on in the biosocial dynamics of the planet it's history history is some kind of phase transition it's a highly temporary state of disequilibrium where mind in nature undergoes a kind of birth out of itself through the intermediary of technically uh, creatures with technical ability and language. And trying to get in tune with this and understand this and have a place in it is what shamanism has always been about. And because it's always had this urgency, because on a planetary scale, you know, a process of 50,000 years is virtually nothing. I mean, it's just the wink of an eye. A mood has come over the planet, and lo, it forces out of itself, it extrudes from biology a whole new level of organization that is confounding to ontology. I mean, what are we? How can we be? Uh, what What is the place that we occupy in nature? Well, you can think about this in your armchair, or you can perturb the field, as it were, with these hallucinogens, and I think they centrally address the issue. I mean, I've compared them to what the telescope was for astronomy in the 16th century, or what the uh, atom smasher and particle accelerator was for the study of the primary structure of matter. I mean, here is a tool that, you know, you get phenomena when you apply this tool to mind. It isn't an, an, a, a stilled surface, or you aren't caught in the insect mechanics of social games. But instead, you know, you really begin to penetrate to the more profound levels. Well, Ken, would you like to tell what you've been up to recently, in as much or as little detail as you care to? Ken is uh, a very sharp guy. He's run a Fortune 500 corporation, speaks excellent Spanish, uh, one thing and another, and... uh, He's lovable for sure. Here,
3: go for this. Well, sometimes I think that Terence is a sort of a an instigator of uh, dormant curiosities. <laughs> so, he certainly has stirred up my curiosity in uh, the ayahuasca experience. I'm fine. So, through, uh, and he asked me to uh, tell you a little bit about what I've just come back from. And, uh, through a series of uh, sort of uh, coincidental happenings. Um, a couple of friends and uh, and I went down to uh, Peru last month and spent some weeks in the Peruvian Amazon. One of the friends is here with us tonight as well, and I'd ask him to add whatever he wants to what I'm telling you. But the um, purpose of our going down there was simply to... Uh, come with direct contact with the ayahuasca experience and the, uh, the way it's practiced there and the way it's used and the purpose for which it's used there. So uh, we had a very surprising and rewarding trip, and uh, we came into contact with the uh, local native Peruvians there and the Amazonian Peru that, uh, that use this stuff on a regular basis and uh, i guess i'll just make some descriptions of what happened there and maybe stop and ask whatever but um what we found there was simply that uh, these people are using this thing on a very regular basis in the area of the peruvian amazon they um it is not organized in any way. It is not, uh, at least there, it is not a religion, it is not uh, an organization in any way. This is is just individual practitioners. Their practice and their technique varies a lot between one and the other, and uh, there is varying beliefs, although generally the thing is used more or less in the same way. There are many uh, ayahuasqueros, or curanderos, what they call in Spanish, which is literally healers. And uh, these healers have sessions uh, as often sometimes as three times a week in which they welcome patients of different kinds. And these patients come sometimes for physical reasons. They have a pain or an ache or a disease of some sort. Sometimes it's for emotional reasons. They're distraught or they're depressed or they're uh, afflicted in one way or another. Often it has to do with relationships, you know, she's not getting along with her husband or the husband doesn't relate to the kids or what have you, so they come to them for that purpose. Now, um, I guess to put the thing in context, you have, uh, I, I should say that what I found there along with my friends too was that... You know, these people uh, live in a, what you might describe a magical context. They believe very strongly in magic. Uh, and by that I mean nothing in their system is um, coincidence or, co- you know, coincidental. Everything has a reason. And usually the reason has to do with, uh, at their level, is somebody is trying to harm you or uh, somebody's trying to take power from you, or somebody's envious of you, and this is the reason for some of the diseases. Uh, Their other explanations are that you have, for example, uh, been in contact with uh, people that have a negative charge for whatever reason, or a bad charge, and then in some way you picked up this negative charge. Uh, in some other cases, um, uh, you know, somebody is distraught for whatever reason. And then even without knowing them, you come across them or you're in contact with them and you pick up this, uh, this uh, bad vibe, so to speak. So the purpose of the, uh, of the healer, the curandero, is to remove uh, either these bad charges or to uh, remove the uh, deliberate intent that somebody has uh, placed upon you with deliberate intent to harm you, and that's a function of the of the granddad. Now their uh, their system is strongly influenced by all these magical things, uh, and uh, to give you an idea of how surreal the whole thing, uh, I think most of you have, or some of you may have heard about this book. Um, written by Bruce Lamb, you know, the um, uh, wizard of the upper Amazon and uh, Rio Tigre and beyond and so forth. Well, there was uh, th- this was a story about a, a man that was captured by uh, Indians and lived a lot of his life as a, as, a, as a healer in a native tribe, and then he finally returned to Iquitos. Well, there was a Spanish book pu- published about him, too, which I don't think has been translated into English, but... Uh, it was interesting because, for example, some of the chapters there in the book describing this fellow and his native name was uh, Ino Moxo. Eno Moxo was the name. His Spanish name was Manuel Cordoba. But, for example, some of the chapters, uh, and I mean, this is to put the thing for you in context: how the belief in magic per- permeates their whole environment. And for example, some of the chapters are titled "When We Where We Shall See That Masks Are Always Below the Face," and another uh, chapter is uh, uh, this "Is How Certain Healers Create Persons," uh, and another chapter is. Uh, Master Inomokso, you know, this guy disappears blowing smoke. So it's a very poetic thing, you know. These things are very magical, but, and they have not sort of left that magical level yet. Uh, So, with that context, um, what happens is they have these sessions and they gather together maybe uh, anywhere from six to 10 people in any one session. The sessions take usually place uh, at night after nightfall. Um, they have a very strict belief in diet uh, prior to taking ayahuasca. And the diet uh, consists of different periods of <coughs> abstinence from a number of things. And depending on what your purpose is and what you are intending to do, Uh, It may be seven days of diet, it may be 15 days of diet, it may be 30 days of diet. And the diet, you have to abstain from things like salt, anything sweet, um, any uh, pork or lard or anything close to pork or lard. Um, No um, um, heavy, greasy things of any kind. Um, And also no sex. Uh, the no sex is very important and in their view that doesn't mean you have to be celibate but it means that if you are intending to take ayahuasca or you know for a certain specific purpose you should be celibate for a day or so many days as the master prescribes and the reason in their view is that if you have any sex this is nothing wrong it just simply takes away your energy and in the explanations that we were given there, um, the plants will not talk to you if you violate the diet. So uh, the sessions uh, happen after night. They recommend that you do not eat anything. They recommend that you adhere to certain diets. And you take this potion, which is uh, you know, a relatively small amount. The brew is... Um, a boiled-down mixture of, uh, you know, several components. And uh, one of the uh, aspects of it is that it is not particularly palatable. (laughs) 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 It is not uh, nauseating, uh, but, you know, it is not something too palatable. And uh, when it goes down, you know, you feel a certain, uh, you know, uh, reaction to it, some nausea. It varies between different people. In some cases, uh, people throw up. um, At some point during the session, they just vomited out. In their view, this is uh, A, normal, to be expected, natural. Uh, Many of them consider the vomiting as positive in the sense that they look upon it as a purge. You know, it... uh, It says that if you vomit uh, during the session, A, it doesn't detract from your experience, and B, it means that you have been purified, that you're getting rid of some of the um, um, poisons, toxins, uh, bad things that you have in in your body. So, in their view, the 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 vomiting isn't negative. Um, They do not, everybody does not absolutely vomit. I mean, it happens... Occasionally here and there, depending with experience, and these sessions last um, anywhere from uh, four to six hours. So if you begin at seven o'clock or something, the thing is usually over by two or two in the morning, three in the morning, and they um, the purpose of the session is uh, is uh, um, there are several purposes. They do it a of course to heal. Um, and healing means, uh, in their view, uh, a very specific thing. At least the people that we were in contact with, uh, they say that the uh, that the vine, uh, that the brew itself, empowers you and gives you the vision. Specifically, it gives you it gives the healer the vision as to what is wrong with a person if it's a case of disease. Uh, but curiously enough that the actual healing is not done by the vine. They firmly believe that the healing is done by the chanting. And this gets a little complex. The healer during the course of the session uh, pronounces or sings these what they call Icaros. And the Icaro is a, is a chant. It's like a song. It's like a sing-song thing. The chants are... Uh, only occasionally have a word of Spanish here and there. Uh, Most of it is either in Quechua, the local Indian language, or often they are nonsense syllables, like D to D or na-na-na or something like that. But they go in a musical, up and down. Now, in their view, the plants, each individual plant, and, of course, you have to realize that there in the Amazon there are Zillions of plants. They all have different uses, and they all know the uses of the different plants. So, they, I mean, it's just like a open pharmacopeia. They're all over the place as to do what to do. But then they um, they believe that uh, the healer, uh, under the influence of the ayahuasca, contacts either the ayahuasca plant or any other plant that he wishes converses with that plant, brings out what they call the mother of the plant, which is another way of saying the spirit of the plant or the genius of the plant, and that that spirit of the plant will teach the healer how to sing that particular song of that particular plant and what that song will heal and what that plant, if given as a leaf or a tea or another combination, will cure so the healer's function then is to take the ayahuasca along with the patient they will both take it (coughs) the healer's function then uses the ayahuasca to acquire power and to see and then once identified what the problem is selects the Ikaro the song to sing to do the healing and the Ikaros as you sit there and of course you're under the influence of the ayahuasca the Ikaros uh, under the, the high become very powerful, and they, they're almost like a hypnotic thing that they, in their opinion and in my experience, uh, increases the effect of the drug. So it, it, it potentizes the effect of the drug. And did you find that these ikaros
1: are actually, you see them because they drive the fabric of the hallucination?
3: Yes, <laughs> and they,
1: cri- they talk about it this way.
3: They talk about it. They call it painting. To chant is painting. That's right. You see, you see them. Yes, you see. You're them. hearing, and in fact, you're seeing them, and in fact, you're touching them. Right. As you know, it's and they tactile. have an emotional
1: texture as well as a chroma. I mean, it's hard to explain. It's very rich. Um, I'd
3: like to just read you in that regard uh, one of the other titles of the chapters that I uh, that I was referring to a minute ago and then because his says Inomoxo says that words are born they grow and they reproduce themselves but not in Spanish <laughs> 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 you have to do them in Quechua All right. this is the reason for the Icaros so as you go into the session, you know, there are different phases, I guess, which are quite different from, um, uh, they vary from person to person, I presume, but you go through a, what I uh, would describe as a sort of a, um, discomfort area <laughs> or a phase in which you sort of don't feel too good and you a, feel a little nauseous and so forth. Uh, you progress on to uh, a second phase, and of course I'm, you know, generalizing, and this would vary according to people. But you progress on to uh, what you might call the uh, the terror phase, <laughs> and at that point, the the horror, the terror, all right, and uh, that. Um, I think has to do with fear of the loss of ego. You lose control and pretty soon you realize you're on a roller coaster that mm-hmm. is totally out of your control or power or to do anything about and of course that instills a trepidation shall I say. Then you move on to a third phase which I guess would be the circus and in the circus you generally see incredible beautiful gardens, colors, entities, uh, Variations in architectural detail. I mean, it, it's a, it's an incredible, and you sit there in dazed wonder looking at this beauty, uh, and you wonder how the world can be so beautiful. And then you will uh, finally go into a sort of a contemplative phase, which is probably the longest in duration in which you have gone through all of these other, um uh... trepidations and then uh, go into this uh, phase in which you contemplate you see yourself uh... peculiarly enough uh... you see other people uh... around you in the session and quite often you see them under a different guise that they normally would be and that was a common experience for me anyway and by that i mean for example uh... You know, you would have somebody sitting next to you, and uh, during this contemplative phase, you would open your eyes and see somebody with uh, human legs, but the body of a bird. Or you would see somebody else, uh, which I'm describing actual visions that I had, uh, seated down there as a monk, with a shaved head. And, of course, you know he's not a monk and he's not dressed as a monk and he doesn't have a shaved head, but that's what you're saying. I and mean, this is not a daydream. Well, when you ask them about it and you ask the healer, uh, they explain that these that what you're saying really are, um, it's like a super-developed intuition. You know, we all have it's intuitions. intuition. Right? You, we all have intuitions about people we meet, and we feel, well, I don't like that person, or this person looks angry, or what have you. Well, this is sort of like that intuition elevated to a super-sensitivity, in which where you're not sort of intuiting it. You're actually seeing a manifestation, so if you're, feeling, if you're seeing somebody as a monk with a shaved head, you're looking at an aspect of that person's personality. And these can be quite revealing and quite surprising. And you often see people as animals. That's another uh, situation. Well, the other thing that they use during the uh, the sessions is uh, the uh, the healer that is in charge uh, is uh, sort of like a presiding person. He controls the session. He can control the session in many ways, and some of the things that they use are camphor water. They put some camphor in water, and of course the camphor only partially dissolves in the water, but it gives it a sort of a camphor, smell and they also use uh, sort of like an old cologne that's been running around Latin America for a long time <laughs> <laughs> called agua de Florida <laughs> Florida water Florida water the
1: Florida. they drink this stuff yes
3: <laughs> and Did it's re- you drink it well actually what I didn't drink it but some many of them put a little bit in the brew oh, yeah. and the purpose of that is to disguise some of the unpleasant smell of course. Now, water fluoridation is just, in effect, a cheap cologne. It's uh, it's like a cologne with uh, with some you know cloves yeah. and some spices. It's not unpleasant, but anyway, they use that and they believe that as a, as, a, as a powerful cleanser. And the other thing they use is um, fresh tobacco. It's not the tobacco that we know here from cigarettes and pipes. This is just the raw leaf, cured a little bit, chopped up, and it's a very clean smell. I don't smoke and I don't particularly like smoking, but to me this was a very powerful, and they believe it's a very powerful curing agent. In fact, one of the better ones in their opinion. So they use the tobacco smoke. Not at all. No, it's a very clean, very, uh, very pure uh, smell. So in these sessions, the healer would, um, you know, pass the brew round. Um, some healers have, since this is really not only, you know, pure jungle. They've been citified to some degree. Some of them have a strong Christian influence. So some of them recite prayers, invoke the Virgin, certain certain saints. Many of them don't. And uh, many of them are really uh, not into the Christian part at all. Many of them uh, have, um, they're simply, you know, they don't talk about prayers. They just sing the songs. After they distribute the brew, they blow, or they blow the tobacco smoke. They believe that, Blowing the tobacco potentiates the brew, uh, and uh, after they the they don't no, ask you no, okay. that's right. They they blow. Does it
2: get Does it get you high different than say? Yes. Is it like marijuana or is it more like tobacco or? No,
3: no. It's, know, it's, it's just a... plain tobacco. It's not a weed or anything. It's just tobacco, so it doesn't get you high. It's just the smell <laughs> and the smoke. But they, they 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 see it as a purifying, as a cleanser, as an empowering agent. So in the session, uh, you know, you sit in a circle. The healer would distribute the potions to everybody after blowing tobacco smoke on it. And then nothing much happens uh, for about 45 minutes or somewhere around there. And then these four or five phases that I described before begin to uh, take effect. And during that time, the healer um, goes around, often individual person after individual person, and he blows smoke on your head, on your back, on your front. Uh, he puts some of the agua de Florida or the camphor water or both in his mouth and sort of blows some of that down your back and that in your head. And um, let me tell you that it's a very powerful experience because <laughs> when you're under the influence <laughs> of these things, uh, you begin to see the healer not as he is in person, but you begin to see the healer as somebody quite different. And you may see him as an animal, you may see him as a bear, you may see him as... uh, So this is coming, uh, different things at different times. It's shifting, shifting, yeah. And then he would um, come around to you and the purpose of the smoke and the... Our first is to increase the... You know, to send you... So he would come around, and of course there are different styles and different ways, but the blowing of the smoke or the um, blowing of the camphor water goes something like this, and I'm not a shaman, so I can't imitate it, but I can give you an idea of how powerful it can be, especially if you are already under the influence. But he would come around and blow on your head, and you know, if this is my head, he would go like... So if you're sitting there, you know, that's I love this. Has an animal doing that. Uh, I'm picturing an animal.
1: Or perhaps a giant mantis waddling across the shed to suck on your anterior fontanelle.
2: All of the above.
3: All of the above, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, He moves around and repeats that with everybody. Uh, In some cases, if you have a problem that you tell him ahead of time, he will call you in front of him. You will sit in front of him, and he will chant directly the caros to you according to the problem that you have. And he will spend 10, 15 minutes with you alone and blowing smoke and... Spreading the camphor water. Well, the uh, I did it myself because I didn't feel anything physically wrong. But uh, many people go to these sessions not only for a physical or an emotional problem. They go to complete themselves, to learn more, to um, contact another reality. So it is not necessarily a disease-oriented thing. All right. They're learning. They're learning. Right.
1: Uh, and the, you mentioned the entities in the part after the rush. Mm-hmm. Was it like an extended DMT
3: flat? Yes. Uh, when uh, you were describing the DMT this morning, about the, uh, all of the entities in the, uh, this incredible, undescribable reality, it was that except extended over a much longer period of time.
1: And were these things relating to you?
3: To some degree, and I think that that's different for each person, you know, and maybe some, Thomas can uh, expand on that, but for example, uh, uh, if you ask a question, uh, one of my experiences was, for example, um, I asked a specific question, and then I had uh, all of these long arms coming out at me with sheets of paper. And there were things written in the sheets of paper in these...
1: Facts on the astral (laughs) plane. And of
3: course I was trying to read these things. Some I could, some I couldn't. Languages are seen and touched and heard.
1: And was there English printed on this paper?
3: No, this was no English. No English.
1: Uh And the entities, were they steady in image? Or were they transforming and geometric? What was their character?
3: Well, I would describe them as very active, moving around all over the place. They're absolutely clear. I mean, it's no blurred. You're not seeing blurred. There. Uh, I think uh, one way of describing them is uh, uh, the influence, the chemical influence of the vine is so strong that you almost feel as if this is some magnet in front of you that, that is drawing you into it, drawing you into it, because... And by that I mean, you know, it's a very strong effect on your body. Uh, As you do more of these things, I found that if you were to surrender to this magnet, you would lose most of the experience because most of the interesting things were going around in the periphery. So I felt that the best way to handle it, and, and I think this you learn after a little bit, is To yeah, be drawn by the magnet, but pay attention to all of the things that are going around around. and what's going around. There's such a variety of things (laughs) that you have to be alert to catch them. You know.
2: Did you ever totally surrender to the magnet?
3: I think if you do, you uh, probably miss part of the experience because it's so powerful that it's no. Did you speak to anyone who did? Yes. Well, in the first experiences, the initial ones, yeah, because what happens is you, it's like you know you get flown away so far that you just sort of almost unconscious and you're not aware yes, and then memory. you miss and then you remember. And it,
1: it becomes almost like anesthesia. So you're kind of and wrong. in fact, if the you're dose do is really intense, your lips will tingle as, as a symptom of the onset of anesthesia. Did you notice that at yes. yes. all? Yeah, yes. Well, if you take tingling lip ayahuasca, then you... Uh,
3: one macho hombre. <laughs> <laughs> some people take more than once. I did not, and I didn't find it necessary. And I one dose with more, <laughs> more than
2: that. dose? Is it a jiggerful, a cupful?
3: Well, uh, that varies too a little bit because, of course, this is a individually boiled and concentrated thing. But usually, some of the sessions uh, we were taking one third of a cup. All right after you take it for a while, they believe, and I think that that is correct, that uh, you need less in amount to get the same effects. So it's uh, instead of your body getting immune to it, it works the other way around. You need less to get to the same place.
1: See, it's running on uh, DMT and beta-carbolines like harmine. And these things all occur endogenously in the human brain. So it's, not, it, it's the closest thing to a cocktail of neurotransmitters that <laughs> you could get to. None of these compounds are invasive at all. They're all part of normal metabolism. It's just that the ratios are now going to be shifted radically uh, by the fact that you're doing so much of it.
2: What sort of group were you with?
3: Well, it wasn't any group. Uh, We just had the good luck uh, of coming across uh, an active Peruvian shaman who invited us to go down there. And then he introduced us to different masters and teachers that he had had. So that was really as simple as that.
2: Did Did your experience change on repetitive uh, exposures? Were you able to control the situation more on a second or a third or exposure than you were on
3: the first? Yeah, two things. Um, they individually prepare the brew in different ways. Some may add some more mixtures. They may add other plants. Some may not. So the brew from master to master changes. So your experience also changes. In some cases, you don't have too many visions. In some cases, um, you feel in an altered state, but in a lesser degree. In some cases, you have a very powerful experience depending on who prepared it and what concentration. Uh, what I The
2: d- recipe is very important. <laughs>
3: oh, yeah. You can really get taken
1: to the cleaners. If you don't speak Spanish and you don't know what you're doing, you can drink a lot of swill before you get to anything good.
3: Right. The other thing that I found, too, was, in answer to your question, was that um, the more you take it, Uh, the more you relate to it and the more productive the experience is and the more you learn from it. In the first experiences, you're almost overwhelmed by the thing. I mean, it's just your mind is blown out of the bathtub. And as you take it more, then you begin to deal with it more, get more out of it, learn more from it, and it becomes much more productive. Did
2: you see it a little frightening after your first time? to do it the second time? Or or was it overall Well,
3: why you'd like to do it again, but I'll tell you, every time I I, I took it, I was terrified going into it, and there's no question about it, and you feel as if you're just going to absolutely go berserk, you know. Now, this is a subjective experience because, in fact, nobody goes berserk from it, and there's no, to my um, knowledge, there's really no danger in the sense of as long as you do it within a prescription. But uh, it inspires terror every time you go into it. Yes, yes, I did
2: that and I
3: feel yes, yes, you do. And also, uh, in most of our experiences, the next day, you know, cont- contrary to, s- to some other stuff you take, you do not generally feel hungover or drawn out or depressed or weak. In fact, you feel energized. And in addition to that, let me tell you that they see it in their view. It is, as I told you, it's like a purge. It's like an energizer. It's like, it's not only, they don't see it as a visionary drug, they see it also as a physical purge to help your body. It's like an energizer, like a tonic. And some of these fellows have three sessions a week and they've been doing this for 20 years. So you can see that... And how do they look? Good, well.
2: And do they want something from you for this service of being your guide and your kind of... your?
3: Healer, do they? Well, many of these fellows—well, these fellows that live as a healer, of course, they generally do nothing else. That's their function. It's like being a doctor. Now, there are good ones and there are bad ones, like anywhere else. Uh, I think we were lucky in that the ones that we came across with—they were really uh, a number one people—and they had the feeling that you know they were doing this because they wanted to help, that they wanted to. Uh, uh, that was their function. It's like a, like a doctor not interested in money. Now, they don't have a set fee or anything? No. They do you give them Yes, or? yes. Uh, they live by it, mm-hmm. and they have these patients that come to them. So uh, now you realize that this is a low-income society. So, I mean, uh, this is not a lot of money from anywhere. But, they, yes, they do pay uh, sometimes in they money. They some- a basket or No, no, no. You just find a way to give them right. something that's right. good to you. There's right. There is no fee, incidentally. They have no fee. Did you have prior
0: uh, experience with psychedelics, and if so, was there any compa- contrast compared to other experiences that you have that you got clearly?
3: Well, I think the closest one that I could uh, describe would be DMT.
0: Yeah. You had done DMT prior yeah. to that. That yeah. was the, was the only one you had done.
3: No, but this would be the closest. I think.
2: you to me about surrendering to the madness.
3: Well the uh, the physical effect that you feel from the brew is very powerful. And I mean physically. I mean you feel the thing in your stomach and you feel mm-hmm. a little bit of nausea and your body feels, you know like uh, drain though.
1: Yeah. Every time it rounds a bend in your intestines, <laughs> it's a metaphysical revelation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and there are many
1: bends in your intestines.
2: Do you get diarrhea?
3: Uh, you get diarrhea from some here? people do I did not uh, but I'm sorry to get no, back well,
2: in fact, like just being accepting and just going
3: with it well what happens is the physical effect is very strong and then the onset of the effect on the brain is quite strong so you feel like uh, like something foreign is is taking you over that's why I mean by the back by the magnet all right uh, like in all of these things I think you have s- some degree of control now if you get absorbed or you get focused in in what's happening to you physically or emotionally in the sense of this effect physically on the, on the gut or this control that, that takes you over, this power that takes you over, then you sort of lose the experience because this is what I mean. You get drawn into that magnet and then you worry about it and you get nothing else. Meanwhile, the visions are happening and in the periphery of that magnet or that physical and emotional thing that's going on you're you're beginning to see visions and these things are revealing and they're telling you things so you have to deal with the physical part and at the same time not be absorbed by it and
1: the psychology is like a roller coaster if you're going to ride a roller coaster it does you no good whatsoever to clench your body it's beyond that you might as well just open yourself up because it's bigger than you are and resistance is just resistance well you you try to you try to cling to that and and i don't like the drugs that absolutely destroy the witness i think the witness is important certain drugs so totally take the world away that it's a breakthrough to be able to figure out that you're on a drug <laughs> If you know that place, it happens on ketamine where you go through all these contortions and then you say, Oh, now I remember. I'm a person on an, on ketamine. That's what this is. And say, Wow, now I... Well, what this means is that you're coming down. But these tryptamines, psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, though they totally distort your sensorium and carry you into this alien world... The observing self it doesn't lay a glove on it. Not a glove. You're all there observing all your fears, all your hang-ups, all your humor. It's don't you find? that? Absolutely. You're there. It's just that my God, what has been set loose? You know, <laughs> and it's like trying to make sense of a, a of a world gone mad. I mean, when the ayahuasca is really strong, the way I experience it, it's like a moving wall of sort of angry, crisscrossing, chattering, mechanical stuff, which just backs me up. And then it just breaks loose like a flood. And I'm swept away. The early phase, you described it perfectly. There is this phase where the boundaries dissolve. Everything comes to pieces. I mean, it literally shakes your reality to pieces until there's not even three-dimensional space left. And then the impression I had was of being carried by a wave and then just finally left on a beach somewhere with my face buried in the sand and just, you know, washed up. And then I sat up, smoked a joint and visions stabilized deep, this DMT thing, and then As Ken says, this long come down, this long cerebral thoughty come down over several hours where you just feel most comfortable and stabilized and reflective on what has happened. And everybody else seems like that too. And what I found was my Spanish in that phase would just flower and I could express myself and say things and we could delve into places with these people that were otherwise utterly unattainable.
3: And that's different from, from DMT coming down? From
1: DMT. Well, see, DMT lasts five minutes and you smoke it. The genius of these Amazonian shamans is that they figured out how to take DMT, which ordinarily would be destroyed in your gut, and combine it with another plant, which turns off the enzyme system in your gut that would ordinarily destroy the DMT. And instead, the DMT becomes orally active. This wasn't even understood by Western pharmacology until 1956. These people have been doing it for millennia. So then, the DMT, instead of hitting with this tremendous rush and then being quickly quenched, which is what happens with the smoking. Instead it unfolds over about the most intense part can be about two hours and then you come down off
3: of it. So it gives you time then. Is that what you're saying? And you were saying it's more productive than later on. Time to deal with things and find things.
1: Yes, and the thing which is most disturbing to people about smoking BMT is the kind of hysterical speed of the whole thing. I mean I mean the fact that you go from ordinary reality to the raging peak of the intoxication in under a minute,. You know, and then you're just left to deal with this thing for two minutes or so to try and get your wits together in the midst of this maelstrom of elf language and all this other stuff. and then you tumble off this narrow plateau down, 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 to forgetfulness. But the ayahuasca you retain,
3: long time Go up. long period do you of time remember yeah. what you saw? I made a little list that may be interesting for you I asked them why do you why do you take ayahuasca why do people come to you and these are the things that they mention they say to preserve health to manipulate the supernatural to travel up here of course to predict I want to see the future To uh, discover thieves and to discover infidelity. A lot of people come to them and they say, my wife or my husband is being, can you tell me if that's true? Uh, To ask for wisdom, to uh, uh, heal disease, to discover the unknown, to uh, reach the essence of things. And then finally, as a purge, as a tonic, all of these things are part of it. Mm-hmm. And the last, you know, the other thing I wanted to tell you is that uh, they uh, they have, um, you know, this strong belief in uh, in uh, evil and good, of course. And a lot of the things that happen to you is because somebody's... Um, and then if you talk to the, some of the more enlightened of them and uh, that are a little more psychologically aware, you realize that this thing is... Um, You can't discount it as being a very primitive or, uh, you know, uh, very stupid, uh, uncivilized thing. Not at all. It's a very sophisticated system. And uh, what they say is, you know, that um, there are good and bad people like everywhere else. Uh, That many of the people that get into the power that ayahuasca gives them, uh, you know, we all have good and bad things inside of us that people that are not aware of this thing, they have some of the bad things inside them come out, and they don't want to admit that it's part of their dark side, part of their negative side. So when you can't admit that that is part of you, then, of course, the only other explanation is it was put there by somebody else, and that that somebody else must be something evil that is trying to uh, harm me. And that in a uh, primitive, original environment, with this, when this was, uh, you know, in the jungle and the Indians were uh, not yet citified, that it was all good because the healer either healed diseases or cured troubles and so forth. Or, uh, in case that he was trying to defend himself from the other tribe, he was also good because he was defending his own people against the other. Enemy, the other tribe, but that now in a acidified environment, of course, where it's partially civilized, and there is no other tribe, so the other tribe is somebody evil. It's uh, you know, so uh, you can't really. The thing works a little bit less well, but that's their sort of viewpoint. You know, you have to deal. And then if you're dealing with the good people, the good, you know, centered shamans, uh, they say that you have to learn all of these powers but that you use them only to protect yourself, that you don't use them to harm anybody else, that the function, you have to learn all of the power and then you use the power only to benefit people but not to, uh, or to protect yourself but not to harm somebody else.
1: When, when this was first discovered in the 19, 1910 to 20 period, they called the alkaloid in Banisteriopsis copy telepathene because they actually believed that these people were experiencing some kind of group state of mind induced by this stuff. Then later it was discovered that it was conspecific to harmine, which had been isolated earlier from Pergamon Harmala and the law of nomenclature dictates you take the earlier name. But Ken's list is interesting. Things like observing the future finding lost objects, determining infidelities. Uh, What all this means in mathematical terms is a higher dimensional perspective, a perspective from which the closed doors of this world are open doors. And uh, Ralph Abraham, who some of you may know, has suggested that one way to model the psychedelic experience is to take seriously the possibility that because we live in a three-dimensional matrix, the incoming data about the world is neurologically processed into a usable three-dimensional map. But under the influence of psychedelics, higher dimensional mappings of the same data are provided, and this would entail the possibility of... uh, if not predicting the future, at least finding lost objects and seeing behind closed doors and knowing the hidden motives of people's actions, which would be a very powerful thing in the hands of someone who understood magical psychology.
2: I wonder to what extent there's communication or exchange among the Indian groups uh, with what you described. I went on a trip about ten years ago to Ecuador. Um, We um, had sort of the same kind of mechanics, and they also spoke in Ketchya, Ke- how we pronounce that. And I just wondered how far this tradition extends and whether the Indian tribes communicate with each other about these techniques.
3: I don't, I'm not sure. I can't answer that myself. I, I'm not there long I enough. I think it's
1: huge that probably this ayahuasca <coughs>
3: curing
1: religion is probably the world's largest psychedelic religion. I mean, we've mm-hmm. talked to people about it trying to estimate the numbers of people involved in this, and it's, you know, an, in the several million anyway. I mean, every village in Peru, every river town, has w- at least one practicing ayahuasca even if people deny it to you. I mean, it is happening all around you. And now it's spreading down into Brazil. These groups like Unión Vegetal and Santo Daime are... Revitalization movements in the context of the Brazilian social situation that are using ayahuasca to create, uh, uh, you know, a new syncretic religious form. There, yeah. Does ayahuasca have a
3: meaning? This it word. means
1: vine of the dead, and uh, the name, the scientific name for the plant is Banisteriopsis caapi. Banisteria refers to the pattern of growth of the vine that the leaves are always directly opposed to each other, like a ladder. So if we were to translate its name into English, we would say it's ladder vine. Ladder vine, ayahuasca, banisteriopsis, copy, and copy, the generic, or I mean the species name, is uh, the word for it in a native language coffee. It's also called yahe in Colombia. But Ken made a good point that it's made by somebody. See, this isn't like peyote or mushrooms or something where it's in its natural state, the consumable drug. This has to be made by somebody and they can make it well or badly. And uh, so it's much more open to manipulation and uh, the influence of the human factors the image you
2: describe of the opposing leaves and so forth and the spine of the dead did you find that from listening the DNA and didn't that reflect oh yeah all
1: all of these things we had many fantasies about ayahuasca being down there and we saw some of the information that the plants were telling us was so incredible that I don't advance it as fact. But the drift of the fantasy when you're in the jungle is you begin to see it as, under the influence of psychedelics, you begin to see it as some kind of very highly integrated data transfer. It's like a coral reef. It's and certain... Organisms are playing major roles in the moving of this stuff around so that the Banisteriopsis liana that grows up to 300 meters long through the jungle and has its tissue laden with these highly bioreactive beta-carbolines is like an antenna. It's a molecular antenna picking up and broadcasting submolecular and quantum mechanical perturbations in the bottom I mean, this is not just tripping you understand this is <laughs> what appears to be going on when you stand there stoned on five grams and ask yourself what's going on did, did you get enough into the jungle can to hear these waves of insect sound that move across the yes. well these things are intense I mean it goes from you know relative silence to many decibels of sound in a Mm -hmm. moving wave and it's shrill sound it's the kind of sound that a square wave generator puts out when you're trying to pump a chemical solution to a higher state of reactivity and here are these insects sweeping the jungle with these screeching waves of uh, synergistic sound that's never been studied The level of pheromonal regulation, the fact that everything is shedding odor molecules into the air, and everything is integrating and communicating, and uh, it's quite intense. It's like a brain. It's like a mind. It's like a super organized individual, and there you are, creeping around inside of it. Mm
2: I have a couple of questions. Um, How long did you usually fast for before taking that lesson?
3: Um, In a regular session, I I found, at least in my case, that if I ate anything after breakfast, I would have trouble keeping it down. So you really have to do it, at least for me, that day. Now, if uh, they talk about, if you really want to get into some of the higher levels, higher level means uh, bringing forth the spirit of the plant uh, and getting deeper into the thing, then you have to fast for longer times than just one day. But one day fast, at least for me, was enough to be able to take the brew without throwing up. If I ate anything during the day, uh, I just couldn't keep it down. And
2: did you get to observe different um, healers
3: preparing?
2: To see uh, the proportions that they were
3: using. No, we uh, we prepared one batch ourselves with one healer, so I know how he did it. Uh, we asked the other ones. We did not see any other ones. But there are some variations uh, in the uh, additional plants that they put on or not, in the time of boiling, uh, what proportions they put on. Yes, there, there are variations. There seems to be two schools of thought. One of them is that you just put the ayahuasca vine itself and the Socotria, which is the DMT-containing plant, And some other, the other school seems to be that you use those and also a species of datura type. And so there are two ways of doing it. Now, also most of them add, uh, and again, this varies because it's a very individual thing, but some of them tell you that they put a little sugar to modify the bitterness as it goes, you know, when you take it. Some of them put a little of the agua florida to modify the smell, and it's not enough. I mean, agua florida is mostly alcohol, but it's not enough to really affect, you know, give you an alcohol high. It's, it's a few drops only. Some of them put a, uh, a um, odor uh, control, too, and they tell you that they put rue, you know, like regular, the rue, the, the herb, to control the, uh, the, the aroma, that which is a little unpleasant. But these are minor additives, so there are all kinds of variations within that.
2: So, when you would go around to the place, did you actually keep track of to, to correlate the experience that you had with the basically different recipes?
3: Yeah, we found. At least I found that uh, the uh, the ones prepared with the datura added, the bromantia added, tended to be more visionary and more powerful. Than the ones prepared without. Now, the other ingredients, uh, you really don't know how much agua de Florida they put in, or how much roux, or how much sugar. You know, that's really minor how stuff. How the they actually use? Well, they, uh, they usually, uh, what we saw prepared there was uh, a final amount of one liter. And uh, for that, they used uh, 15 leaves, relatively large sized leaves of the detour. Uh, well, one liter would probably give you enough for ten to fifteen people.
1: So basically, one leaf per hit. Mm. Mm-hmm. But it's not datura; it's a brugmansia yes. that, that they call toa. But it's very strongly solanaceous. When you roll the leaf in your hand, it smells just like
3: datura. It's a bush. It's a tree datura. It's not. It's not a, uh, a creeper. Mm-hmm.
2: How many times did you
3: it? Well, while we were down there, it was must have been at least eight times or so.
1: Because, uh, are these compounds and plans all scheduled one?
3: Interestingly,
1: beta-carbolines have never been scheduled. Oh. Mm-hmm. But DMT is of course
3: scheduled. Yeah, but, but, uh, no, of the, the ba- harmine,
1: harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, mm-hmm. and 6-methoxyharmalan are all psychedelic and none have been scheduled. What,
2: what does do scheduled mean? That
1: like? Scheduled means put on the DEA's list <laughs> of very bad drugs. Mm-hmm. If something is schedule one, it's treated like cocaine, heroin, LSD psilocybin, DMT these are the schedule 1 drugs then there's a schedule 2 and a schedule 3 and so forth but beta carbolines have not been scheduled another interesting thing about ayahuasca that makes it very powerful in the environment where it's operating is it kills intestinal parasites very effectively worms especially This is a major problem in the tropical third world. We even brought some back and at UC Med Center they worked, they used it to kill the trypanosomal phase of the life of the malarial organism. Well, if it's even slightly retardant of malaria and it has a proven ability to retard intestinal parasites, (laughs) definitely, for that alone, it's probably extending the lifetime of its users by a significant percentage. I have another question about preparation. Um, The ayahuasca,
2: do they use the dry form or do they use the fresh? Uh,
3: No, what we saw there was used fresh and they simply cut uh, foot-long pieces of maybe uh, anything up to uh, an inch in diameter. Mm-hmm. And, and then they mash it and uh, boil it down in water with the socotria. Uh, it? Well, it's probably a four to one for, mm-hmm. for uh, ayahuasca to uh, one of the socotria. And then they do not add the uh, brugmancia till the very end. And the other question
2: I had was, um, in reading Lamb's work right. the, among the Cordova, um, at least in the tribal situation, it seems that ayahuasca is a, is a substance that's used uh, for men. You know that the that the men come together and they use that in their visioning. And uh, later, when he goes back, you know, in, into um, his hometown, and as a healer, there are definitely women, who, you know, who take um, to be healed. But I never got the sense that there are actually women healers who use. And I, I was curious if been
3: across them. No, the people we uh, met there were generally, I mean, it was not in a strictly jungle environment. This is really in city-fied, and they're usually not pure Indians. They're sort of mestizos, Indian white mixtures. Uh, we did not see a woman healer. We did hear that there were he- women healers. Uh, what we did see that the patients that were coming to the healers that we were with uh, many of them were women yeah, but, participants
2: but when you heard of the women healers did they, was ayahuasca their drug of choice yes okay.
3: yeah. we did not but see any. Know,
2: some, in some cultures there's, there's a yeah. split
1: there's a famous woman healer in southern Peru called Maria Juana Gonzalez Obi, and as a girl of 18 she had lost her toes and fingers to leprosy when she finally found, I think, Manuel Corredor Rios. And he cured her with ayahuasca. How this is possible, who knows. But apparently he did this. And she went on to be a renowned ayahuasca in the Tingo, Tingo Maria area.
2: Did you see the people that came to be healed? Did they, were they healed of whatever was? went there for? Did
3: they get what they went for? I don't know because, of course, these are total strangers. And uh, the sessions, we were there. Some were, and then some were not at the next one and so forth. But we, uh, you know, heard about, you know, one thing that these people do, the healers, and uh, I'm not saying that that's bad, but they like to boast about their prowess. Mm-hmm. They like to say how strong they are, how many people they have healed and all that. That may not be entirely bad because if it instills in the patient faith that they can be healed, maybe it helps in the healing, but they like to talk about them. And uh, we have met uh, one kid there that uh, uh, the maestro that we were uh, working with there said that that was one of his big successes, and he said that the kid had suffered from intermittent fevers for more than a year and the doctors couldn't cure him. And then he uh, was uh, feeling better and the fevers had disappeared. And we talked to the kid a little bit and he said, yeah, and so forth. Interestingly enough, the kid at the time was sort of weak and not in very strong physical condition. So he was attending the sessions but not taking ayahuasca himself. But you see, the theory is what heals is the song, not the vine. So he didn't take. He didn't necessarily take the brew. He was being healed by the singing, the tobacco, and the water, and so forth.
2: And what about you? Um, you got what you went for, right?
3: Absolutely, sure.
2: And how is your life now um, different? I don't know if this is exactly how to ask. But how do you feel now? I mean, as opposed to before. How do you how do you see differently?
3: Well, I just came back, but. <laughs> but uh, you know I think that uh, for me anyway what uh, the purpose in this was like uh, I think many of us are in is like uh, you know attaining a higher consciousness you know expanding I mean, your like,
2: do you feel like you have
3: a great sense of the, the mystery that you didn't have before I mean, like yes to some degree sure I don't, I, I don't think Well, the other thing maybe to answer your question is, uh, you know, during this contemplative phase, you know, after all of the um, shenanigans are over, um, you really begin to see other people, as I described, intuitively and very special things like birds and animals. But you also see yourself and you also reflect and you also see your own psyche in a very different way. And you learn from it. At least I learned a lot from that because you see things that you normally would not be able to be aware of in your ordinary state so you see things about your own life and your own behavior and your own psyche that are you know, sometimes terrifying and sometimes <laughs> very good but both in any case enlightening so I think that's where you learn
2: is this, is this creating a more aware society down there for these people are they spreading are they in, you know are they know
3: or something that we would all like to have? Well, I I don't don't know how to answer that, but on an individual (coughs) level, the people that we dealt with down there, I found to be extremely simple, honest, sincere, clear, grounded, beautiful people, you know, on an individual level. These people were, it's like a block of crystal. You could see right through them. And there were no jealousies and envies and, you know. Now, these were a very limited sample. Now, of course, the country itself is in a complete turmoil. You know, politically, it's just a disaster. And there's very little order and the place is chaotic. So, but that's the only things I could tell you. But the people we were dealing with there, especially the healers, are uh, you know? Were very clear, very centered, and very sincere, and very honest, and enormously helpful people. You know, they were they were turned outside to help, to help, to help.
2: And did this make a closer connection for them
3: with nature? They're very close to nature, and they talk a lot about plants. They use it. Uh, you know, they uh, they talk about protecting it. They're worried about the cutting down of the trees. Uh, they're close to animals. So that, they're very close to that, absolutely, yeah. Very aware of that, too.
2: Information that wasn't coming to you from the
3: outside? Yes, um, a couple of examples of that is, uh, you know, there's usually this, what people call the DMT zing or buzz, and when you're in this uh, high initial period in there, you definitely hear that zing, it's like zing! you know, kind of thing. Um, for a while and that sort of disappears. There's also uh, what we were talking about if you uh, hear language or, or something like that you you hear the language you see it and you touch it so it's a sort of uh, the sensory stimuli are all crossed you're, you're seeing hearing and touching the same thing. Also the uh, the Ikaros when they sing the songs you know when he begins, and uh, you're you're only getting into the influence, it's just a regular sing-song, you know, goes up and down a little bit like a Gregorian chant or something like that. But when you really are into the high, then the songs become very powerful. And uh, when you hear the song, it's more than just music; it's like you're touching it and you're you're being affected by it. The the thing works in reverse too. They can also if. And we saw that demonstrated there. If uh, a person is too high and too far gone and is too afraid or is too terrified by this thing, and it can happen, they can also bring the high down in that person, either by singing a specific Ikaro or, more specifically, he comes around, the healer, and with agua the florida or camphor water in his mouth he comes around and he sucks <laughs> on the head of the person that needs to be brought down and then spits that water in a bucket and he does that several times and in three minutes that person that was way out there is right back down and uh, you know calmed down quieted down so they they can pull it both ways yeah. but they would come around and for example uh The healer would come around and um, in front of one person and he would, you know, blow the tobacco smoke and the water and so forth. And sometimes he would say, I see this or I see that, you know, in the same way that you're seeing other people as different things. He would come and I say, I see this, and he would tell the person what he's seeing. Parents,
2: are are these um, vines and stuff um, growing in other parts of the South America?
3: only where
1: they've been taken, this is, you know, propagated, it's native to South America, this whole complex uh, is, is definitely South American. Is this brew available for export? Well, these Santo Dime people seem quite interested in propagating their new religion and, uh, seem to be holding sessions. I don't know what their production capacity is. People are using it in psychotherapy experimentally and holding sessions. In the the United States? In the United States. It's very hush-hush. But uh, this kind of thing does go on. Uh, It's very promising, I think. I mean, you know, MDMA was the idea there was that it was an empathogen introducing this new word of inducing empathy I think ayahuasca is like an empathogen except that instead of bonding and relating to the immediate people that you're with you actually relate to suffering humanity I mean it's very heart opening it's interesting that it can be so much like mushrooms chemically and yet the experience is quite different. Mushrooms are this titanic, alien, planetary perspective that's very off-planet. And the ayahuasca perspective is, it's about running water and plants and birth and death and soil and all this... Didn't you feel that? Very much so. And the songs, when they sing the songs you have this insight, you understand what they're singing about. And what they're singing about is the river and the light and the flow and, uh, you know, that, that's what it is. It's a bonding to the living earth. It's very interesting that the rainforest is tremendously imperiled. There's all this political focus on it then there's the cocaine thing which is a whole other level of complication and hysteria and gangsterism and then there is this transcendental speaking vine that makes people sing themselves to help. so you know maybe the answer is there and it's just a question of who gets there first what shall it be the salvation of the planet or plywood <laughs>
2: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: So, what's it to be? The salvation of the planet or plywood? <laughs> Those uh, prophetic words by Terence McKenna were spoken over 25 years ago, but do we have an answer yet? From outward appearances, the Amazonian jungle continues to be diminished by slash-and-burn agriculture that's, well, it seems to be devoted mainly to feeding a never-ending supply of hamburgers to overweight Americans. But on the other hand, uh, in the years since this talk was given, there has been a significant amount of interest raised about the ayahuasca experience. Although I was aware of uh, the ayahuasca brew around the time that this talk was given, my primary source of information about it came from William S. Burroughs's book, The Yahé Letters, and uh, a few other little articles here and there. Now, out there, where I was living on the edge of the tribe at the time, I still hadn't even heard about Terence McKenna or DMT, for that matter. Yet, uh, there was just enough information about ayahuasca that I kept searching for a way to experience it. Well, it took until Good Friday in 1999, ten years almost after this talk was given, before I finally made contact with uh, Lady A and had my own first experience. And if you've been here with us in the salon for a while, then you already know what a life-changing experience ayahuasca has been for me uh, and for thousands of others, by the way. I don't know about the Antarctic continent, but I understand that since this talk was given in 1989, that ayahuasca ceremonies have now been performed on every other continent on the planet. Well, as much as I'd like to cover one more topic today, I'm instead going to sign off so that I can give a little bit more thought to it myself. But uh, just to give you a little hint of what I plan on talking about a few weeks from now, I want to remind you of something that Terence said at the beginning of the talk that we just listened to. He said, and I quote, Does it mean that causality itself is something embedded in our language? End quote. And for the geeks among us, uh, (laughs) that sentence speaks volumes. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.